Thanks, Chris. Morning, everyone. Well, a few months ago, I was helping my mum clear out her loft, and um, I came across a box of old keepsakes and, and letters. And among the letters were a number written to me from my dad uh, before he died. And a lot of his work was overseas, and so it was sometimes months before I'd see him again. And during those times, he wrote to us often. I was recently reading through all those letters, which was both enjoyable and moving. But I was especially struck by his encouragements, his advice, his instructions, which he gave me from afar. He had words to me about dealing with bullies, about making the most of school and not taking shortcuts. On one occasion, obviously, when he heard news from my mum, he told me, a temper will never do you any good. And often he'd end the letters telling me that he missed me and he loved me and to look after my little brother and sister. My dad's letters gave me words to live by, to help me live in his absence, especially in my role as the eldest child in our family. Today we come to the end of 1 Peter, which Peter wrote to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia to a mixed and displaced community of Christians, to Christians who live, move, and work among other people and in various places and settings, but who don't quite fit or belong or know how to live or do good in a society with different, even conflicting values. Yet, as we said at the beginning of this sermon series, it's not just a letter for first century Christians. It's a letter for the church today. Peter brother of Andrew, one of the 12, penned it with a first century audience in mind. But as with all of Holy Scripture, the primary author of these words is the Holy Spirit, who's preserved and given this letter to the whole church throughout time and space. What's given here is to help us, as much as it did then, to live well as a church according to our roles and our responsibilities. As we saw last time, Christians may well participate in the sufferings of the one they follow, Jesus Christ, those sufferings that come upon Christ's people, which many Christians through history and some in the world today have endured, make the need for good leadership and faithful pastors even greater. What's more, even if we, St. Paul's Banbury, are not facing the same kinds of trials that others are going through, there are still dangers for us which have the power and capacity to beset the flock. And so with these final words in the letter, Peter warns us of those dangers and how we should guard against them. First, he has a word to ministers. After the resurrection over a fish breakfast on the shores of uh, the Sea of Galilee, do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Three times, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Three times, Peter affirmed that he did. And after each answer, Jesus gave a similar instruction. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Take care of my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. 
i.e., if you love me, Peter, be a shepherd to the flock. That's how you're to express it. Not the shepherd. They are, after all, Christ's lambs and Christ's sheep. Be a shepherd of God's flock, which I am entrusting to your care. And that's exactly what Peter did. Up until his death, Peter was an appointed shepherd in the Church of Christ. Yes, his role as an apostle was unique, but Peter was also commissioned simply to be a pastor. Pastor is the Latin word for shepherd. But this commission was not a solitary exercise. The role and responsibility Peter received from Christ, he shared and passed on to other recognized elders. So verse 1, to the elders. Uh, the word is presbyteroi, which is the word we use for ordained ministers in the church. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. What are they to do? Be army colonels of God's flock. Be innovative business leaders of God's flock. Be entertainers of God's flock. No, none of those things. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Now, you might ask, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, um, before making our declarations in the ordination service, this is what the bishop says to all of us who have been ordained. Um, I'm putting it on the screen. Uh, priests, that is, sorry if you can't see it. It's very small, but I am reading it out. Um, priests. That is, presbyters, the same word that Peter uses, presbyters, are called to be servants and shepherds among the people to whom they are sent. With their bishop and fellow ministers, they are to proclaim the word of the Lord and to watch for signs of God's new creation. They are to be messengers, watchmen, and stewards of the Lord. They are to teach and to admonish, to feed and provide for his family to search for his children in the wilderness of this world's temptations and to guide them through its confusions that they may be saved through Christ forever. Formed by the word, they are to call their hearers to repentance and to declare in Christ's name the absolution and forgiveness of their sins. With all God's people, they are to tell the story of God's love they are to baptize new disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and to walk with them in the way of Christ, nurturing them in the faith. They are to unfold the scriptures, to preach the word in season and out of season, and to declare the mighty acts of God. They are to preside at the Lord's table and lead his people in worship, offering with them a spiritual sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. They are to bless the people in God's name. They are to resist evil, support the weak, defend the poor, and intercede for all in need. They are to minister to the sick and prepare the dying for their death. Guided by the Spirit, they are to discern and foster the gifts of all God's people that the whole church may be built up in unity and faith. Without a doubt, that is a privilege beyond description, one I pray that I'm still 
growing into. But it's also a weighty responsibility and a high calling, one that frankly makes me tremble, as it should. So would you pray for us? But when you, when you do pray for us as, as church ministers, please don't just pray that we do things better or more efficiently or skillfully as much as we may need those prayers. Um, we're not meant to be army captains or business leaders or um, celebrity entertainers. Most of all, please pray that we'd become more of the people we've been called to be. Pray that we'd make progress as under-shepherds of the chief shepherd. Because notice how Peter's words focus primarily on character. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Ministers are to be examples to the flock, ambassadors, embodied representations of Christ himself. You know, it can be incredibly tempting um, to just transport the practices and strategies of successful companies in the world, perhaps, to, to the church. And of course, there are many, many things that we can learn from spheres outside the church, which we can put into practice, all of which are, are, are good. But above all, Christian ministers are called to be something before they do anything. That's a challenge for us who are ordained. What is it we prioritize? What do we spend the best hours of our day doing? Are we leaving space to grow in, in godly character and in grace? But it may also raise some questions for the whole church and, and perhaps the PCC especially about how the clergy and the leadership should function. With limited time and capacities, what should be our focus as under shepherds? And how can you, the congregation, help us and enable us to be servants and shepherds among you? A word to ministers. In the role and place you've been called to, you've, you've, been, given a, you've been appointed to care, to direct, to nurture, to guide Christ's people. Even when it's difficult and, and there's no immediate or obvious reward, that's the way of Christ, who died for his sheep. And he will bestow honor and glory upon you when the work is done. Uh, verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, Jesus Christ himself, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Um, for now, though, it's Advent when we watch and wait for his appearing. So that's a word to ministers. Next, a word to the congregation. Um, if you're following in your church Bibles, um, as I hope you are, um, I think this is an occasion where I'm going to do that annoying thing and, and point out a translation issue. Um, so the NIV, this 1984 version, reads this in verse 5. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. In reality, the word for young men doesn't have to refer to those who are male. Uh, it can simply mean younger people. 
What's more, to be younger doesn't have to refer to someone's age from birth. For Peter has already used the metaphor of um, babies craving spiritual milk to describe how the whole church should grow. So here, it's most likely that Peter is addressing all those who are simply not elders. So he speaks to the elders, and now he speaks to those who are younger, i.e. younger in faith and responsibility. In fact, the word he uses for those who are older is the same word as the word used for elders in verse 1, presbyteroi. So within the household of faith, in the way that it's been appointed by God, it's right and appropriate for congregations to submit themselves to the care of Christ's under shepherds. Not in all things, not in all places, but in the sphere, the, the setting of the church. The congregation are called to be teachable and willing to follow their example. Again, not because we're perfect or because we'll always get things right, but because those are the roles and responsibilities we've been called by God to undertake. And doing so is an, is an expression of faith in him, in the chief shepherd. Of course, that is not to say that people should subject themselves to the abuse of power. Anything that goes against the way and the teaching of Christ, the chief shepherd, is not of Christ. In fact, when Jesus instructed his disciples not to lord it over those, his, you know, his flock, his fellow believers, this is what he said to them. He said, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. That's the exact same word used by Peter here and the one who rules like the one who serves. Perhaps that's what Peter had in mind when he wrote this, because he goes on, speaking about our relationships with one another. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves with humility. As you interact with one another, put on servant's clothes, as it were, asking, perhaps, how I can build up this person I'm, I'm speaking to, how I can lay aside self, um, keeping my most impressive outfits in the cupboard, and serve them in a way that makes them increase and develop in the faith, clothed in humility, or to look around, who is it that needs encouragement? Who needs help? Who needs a kind word? Who needs assurance? Who needs an apology? Who needs sympathy? Who needs someone to pray with? How can I move towards them, not away from them? You know, humble service is always active. Clothe yourselves with humility. And it's often hidden. Uh, that can be a, a great source of pain and difficulty. Um, servants are not always given what's due to them. But you know, God sees, and he knows, and he cares, even when others don't. The verse 6 again, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. 
just as Peter quoted from Psalm 34 previously, the Lord's eyes are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. On Thursday at, at Jim's funeral, we heard Psalm 23 read, and, and the psalm begins, the Lord is my shepherd. And it ends, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you're mistreated for doing good or for, for speaking or living in the way of Christ, either through malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, as Peter has pre previously mentioned, from within the church, or you're mistreated through the hostility of those outside, or your service goes unnoticed or unseen, God cares. He delights in you. And when we lay aside our pride, our self-righteousness, our self-entitlement, our self-glory, turning to him in those moments of trial or need, there is a promise here that he will sustain you. He will lift you up. He lifts us up and carries our burdens. And so he frees us from the need to prove ourselves before others, to be right all the time, or, or um, uh, to receive what we think is due to us. But there's a warning here too, one we all need to hear. Because when we accept that humble status and we live in that humble way of Christ, it stirs up opposition. Not just worldly opposition, but spiritual opposition. Verse 8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. You know, the word devil means slanderer. From the very beginning, the devil's primary aim has been to slander God's word and to slander the faith of God's people. So in Genesis, he sought to undermine, undermine God's instruction to Adam and Eve leading to their fall. Did God really say? In the book of Job, we get an insight into his aims to undermine people's faith. Does, does Job fear God for nothing? I.e., take away Job's possessions, God, and he'll curse you. When Jesus was tested in the wilderness, the devil tried to tempt Jesus with the promise of glory if he exchanged worship for the Lord with worship of Satan. In subtle and various ways, that continues to happen, and we need to be alert to that. When sin is normalized or even celebrated, it is the work of the slanderer. When humble service is exchanged for the pursuit of glory or power or advantage over others, that is of him. The ancient church father Cyprian writes this um, really stark description of the devil's work. He writes, he goes around us individually, and like an enemy besieging those shut up, he examines the walls and explores whether there might be some part of our members less firm and less trustworthy 
by entrance through which a way inside may be effected. He offers to the eyes unlawful appearances and seductive pleasures, that he may destroy purity through sight. He tempts the ears by harmonious music that he may get rid of and weaken Christian strength by the hearing of a pleasant sound. He arouses the tongue to reviling. He urges the hand to capricious murder when, it, when it's exercised by injuries. He provides unjust gains that he may make a cheat. He piles up dangerous profits that he may ensnare the soul by money. He promises earthly honors that he may take away heavenly ones. He manifests false values that he may steal away the true. And when he's not able to deceive secretly, he threatens clearly and openly, bringing forward the fear of violent persecution in order to ov overcome the servants of God. Al always restless and always hostile, he is cunning in peace, violent in persecution. It's the work of the slanderer. But where Adam failed and Adam gave in, Jesus has succeeded. And in doing so, he has bound Satan. He may be a roaring lion, but he's a lion on a leash. The devil has no power over Jesus Christ. And it's by that power that Christ's people can stand and resist the devil's threats. Even when we're weary of the battle, when we're tempted to give up and to give in, the Lord's infinite might is available to us. So, verse 10, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So as Christian people, when we feel weak, compared to the strength of the prevailing cultures, when we feel small and insignificant in a society where secularism is the increasing norm, when we feel bruised by the damage inflicted on the church, sometimes even by those who wear the label Christian or evangelical or minister. Remember this. God is mightier than our greatest enemy. And God's mercy extends beyond our greatest inadequacies. He is great and he is good. Finally, with those words given to the ministers of Christ and to the people of Christ, um, this faithful pastor, Peter, an example to us, has one last word to impart. So very briefly, um, we're looking at verses 12 to 14. Peter began the letter with a word of peace. He said in verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And he now finishes the letter with a demonstration and reaffirmation of peace. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. 
So Peter, his companion, Silas, the, the church of Rome, which I, I think is probably what's meant by she who is in Babylon. Mark, Peter's mentee, and the scattered exiles and strangers in the world he's writing to are united by the peace of Christ and his gospel. As the church stares into the danger and uncertainty of a sometimes hostile world, Peter reminds his recipients here at the end, including us, that nothing and no one can overthrow the rule of Christ, the Prince of Peace, who said to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And so as we leave this letter behind, may we, the temple of God built on Christ, his chosen people, his royal priesthood, recipients of his mercy who belong to him, together stand fast in that. Amen.